The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop on twisting your licorice and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 517 with guest Jason Olson, recorded live Tuesday, December 15th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now. The man who says, never play strip poker with a nudist, they've got nothing to lose, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks, Carl and Richard. What's up, man? Yes, sir. Here we are again. I'm getting ready to record an eight-piece string ensemble in the studio tonight. But you don't play strings. No, no. But you know what? I'm right across the street from the headquarters for the Eastern Connecticut Symphony Orchestra. Oh. And that makes it really nice when it comes time to find studio string players. I just call up a few friends, and they bring over their cellos and violas and violins, and we set up and chairs and a couple microphones, and bing, bang, boom, we got string section. Nice. I like that. That is good. I like that I a lot. I love that. Anyway, let's jump into Better Know a Framework, because you better know it. <laughs> So what do I want to know? So Better Know Framework, and this is going to be a good show because this is going to be sort of like a whole bunch of Better Know Framework, right? Yes, we're going to Better Know a whole we're bunch of Framework. Better, we Better Know a whole bunch of Framework after this. So Better Know Framework, a little section where I shine a little light on a dark and dingy corner of the .NET Framework in hopes that over time by osmosis uh, you'll learn about what's there. And you know, if you want to learn any more about it, you can go check it out. So we're going to talk about system.diagnostics.codecontracts. New in .NET 4, code contracts. Huh. Code contracts provide a language agnostic way to express coding assumptions in .NET apps. The contracts take the form of preconditions, postconditions, and object invariants. And they act as check documentation of your external and internal APIs. The contracts are used to improve testing via runtime checking, enable static content verification, and documentation generation. So you, you get the whole idea of uh, metadata taken to a whole new level. That's cool. It's pretty cool, huh? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go to research.microsoft.com. Now, that's a big, long email. Just 
Bing code contracts. He'll find it. <laughs> What's so hard about that? Systems.diagnostics.contracts. Richard, who's talking to us now? I got an email specially for you because it's titled, Carl. Really? I just wanted to let you know I really enjoy your show. Besides the content that is always informative, I even enjoy the back and forth chit chat and humor. Hmm. After visiting your intellectual hedonism site i see that richard has his own podcast mm. and i look forward to checking that out too and i'm a fan of the hansel minutes podcast all so, good hey, stuff there you go trifecta a little run as radio a little hansel minutes how about a little dnr tv a little pepper yeah. a little garlic bada bing bada boom you got a meal there you go on a side note i'm impressed by you and that you can seem even more capable than me in my areas of interest namely vb.net programming Music, because I play a tad a bit of a guitar, mm. and you can even sing, which really ticks me off because I can't. Oh, sorry. Your one-man band video was quite impressive. That was fun. That was a 3 a.m. inspiration. Yes. Obsessive-compulsive behavior. Yeah, I'm, yes, I'm trying to uh, harness my OCD for the powers of good. Ah, that's a great idea. I like that idea a lot. I've heard that somewhere before. You have, have you? And I remember you back from your VB website in the VB3 days. It was my favorite site for VB Code, which I'm always in search of. Keep up the great work on the show, Chad Dukmanovich. Thank you, and Chad. Chad, we will fire you a mug for your nice email. Let's give him two mugs because he stroked my ego so well. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll make a note. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. Two mugs for Chad. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas you want to talk about, uh, Stuff we should be doing on the show, send us an email, rocks at franklins.net. And, you know, I haven't um, plugged these guys in a long time, but if you're looking for work, look no further than Infusion. Those are our friends down in New York City. They're a nicely creative, big, kind of small, big company. I say small, big. They have offices in London, Toronto, Dubai, and New York City. And they're always looking for really good, really sharp .NET developers, that's why they come to us, because they know that if you're listening to us, you take your job seriously. So uh, if you're interested in relocating, send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I'll hook you up with them. Richard. Sir. It's time to introduce our guest, our friend Jason Olson. Jason, for the developers, Olson, for the developers is his middle name, with an exclamation point. <laughs> Uh, he's a senior. How would his parents know? I don't know. We'll have to ask him. He's a senior uh, technical evangelist in the developer and platform evangelism division at Microsoft, currently evangelizing Visual Studio 2010 and .NET Framework 4.0. When he's not working or being an overall language geek, he's either spending time with his wife and two sons, performing as a jazz pianist. Wow, I didn't know that, Jason. Yeah, pretty shocking, huh? Yeah. Writing jazz compositions and arrangements for sound music publications, or just spending time being a geek with a special appreciation of computer history. Welcome, Jason. I didn't know you Thank played you. jazz. Yeah, I do. I'm a big jazz guy. I have been most of my life. I got a story for you. Can I tell you a story? I don't, you, and I'm Absolutely. not going to tell you the guy's name, but uh, I was down at Hannafin's, which is the Irish pub directly below me, and there's a band playing there, and this guy was talking to me. And uh, he sort of fancies himself a manager of some band or something. Again, I'm not going to divulge names. And uh, he likes to talk, you know. So he said, hey, what do you guys do up in the studio? You know, what have you been working on, Carl? 
said, well, me and my my band just uh, did a cover of a Miles Davis tune. He goes, oh, which one? I said, well, uh, so what? He goes, oh, that's like the Miles Davis tune, man. That was that was awesome. That's an awesome tune. Like, oh, yeah, you like that stuff? He goes, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm a huge Miles fan. Okay. So we come up to the studio. You know, he wants to check it out. And I say, well, here, let me play you this. And I put on the recording. So what? Now, anybody who's heard it once knows the melody. Yep, absolutely. Right? And it's like 11 minutes long. It goes into a jam. It's like a train wreck at the end. It's just this nasty old jam, (laughs) right? The beauty of modalness. Yeah. And after that, (laughs) he goes, whoa, that was pretty out there. Hey, put on that Miles tune that we were talking about. I swear to God. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. What do you do? Busted. What do you do in that situation? You go, uh, yeah, that was, that was it. Uh, yeah, yeah nice. Oh, you flip the bozo bit on him. I just, I don't usually, you know, and I really, I just really tried to change the subject real fast because that's really embarrassing for me too, you know? It's like, yeah. all right, you're bullshitting and I caught you. What about that <laughs> Irish artist? <laughs> Man. Miles. Miles and miles to go. Yeah. He's a good one. So let's talk .NET 4.0. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. There is a lot of stuff here. I mean, almost too much to even dig into. I know you've had guests or... We'll have guests on some of the upper stuff like data access and web yeah. frameworks and stuff like that. Even down in the language space, CLR and BCL, it's a huge piece, almost <laughs> almost to the extent of being a death by a thousand cuts. You said BCL, and I want to point out that we haven't had a new base class library since 2.0, right? Right. Yeah, there's been a lot of additions that are kind of caked on top of it, but between the BCL and the CLR... You know, we had CLR2, we're going to have CLR4, and interestingly enough, there truly never was a CLR3 when you get down to it. Shh, don't, you're giving it away. I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's a little strange, but I I really, you know, since the version thing is always confusing, we got to come back to that again. Yeah, and that was a big thing, especially it can get confusing when... We've unified a lot of the versioning numbers, so like even Entity Framework now, even though it's the second version, we're calling Entity Framework 4 to get around the confusion of, hey, this is .NET Framework 4, this is the fourth release, let's unify all this versioning and make it not nearly the confusing mess it was before. Yeah. Trying to But you know, Microsoft actually listens to people. It's shocking sometimes. They do. But, you know, we hear customer pain. Yes. You know, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. It's an old story. Sometimes I mean, Microsoft, more than we would like, but <laughs> Microsoft has also always listened to not just the customers, but uh, competitors' customers. Yeah, absolutely. You know? They want to see what's going on out there. Yeah, competition is good. We love competition. In fact, I think Microsoft's one of those companies that it truly thrives when it's under threat. You know, mm-hmm. when it's being competed against and has its back up against the wall. I think that's when the teams really step up and start knocking out home runs. Yeah. For sure. So where do we start today? <laughs> That's a good question. Where do you guys want to start? We have everything from all the way up to the language space to some of the core framework improvements around things like parallel extensions and MEF and even some of the 
core data structures, even the CLR. I mean, CLR4 contains a lot of stuff and a lot of improvements that we're talking about with this release. Wasn't there changes to the garbage collection? Yeah, yeah. absolutely there was. A big change, which is the introduction of something called background GC or background garbage collection. Yeah. Yeah, what's really interesting about background garbage collection is it's really an upgrade of the existing concurrent GC for desktop, where there were plenty of limitations that we ran into with the concurrency, uh, the concurrent GC around allocation of memory. So if you're going along and you're allocating, especially Gen 0, Gen 1 type stuff, you can hit this allocation limit where you run out of stuff you can allocate. And as soon as that happens, your thread was actually suspended completely while garbage collection took place. Yeah, and it, right. took the, it made a little hiccup. Exactly. And it kind, of defer, it kind of defeats the purpose of concurrent GC, where concurrent GC was really developed to target those desktop UI responsive applications that always wanted to be responsive without, you know, the white screen of death. Right. Early, early games uh, running on uh, DirectX in managed code would have that pause you know, right, exactly, while the GC <laughs> ran in the background. Yeah, meanwhile, somebody's running up to you with a gun blowing you away. So, you know, right, yeah. Yeah, and it became a pain. So with background GC, what it essentially allows you to do is that allocation, there isn't, there's still a limit per se, but as you hit that limit, you can actually continue going while the GC is happening or running in the background. So there's no abrupt stoppage of that thread. You can continue that behavior going forward. Side-by-side CLR versions? Yeah, so side-by-side CLR versions is another big one. The biggest addition to side-by-side CLR versions with .NET Framework 4 or with CLR 4 is an introduction of what we call in-process side-by-side, which when it comes to hosted applications can be a huge feature. Let's say looking forward to Office adopting .NET Framework or some other host adopting .NET Framework that becomes huge. Right. You know, we used to support out-of-process side-by-side, where, of course, you could have one process using, you know, .NET 1.1. You could have another process using 2.0, but they couldn't intermingle within the same process. And you, na- now you nailed it with ASP.NET because that's one process, one version of CLR. If you've got a tool that was built for Framework 2.0 and you don't have, you're not running on Framework 2.0, you were out of luck. Right. So you combine that with other... Um, issues like the .NET Framework 4 not auto-rolling forward applications, and you find yourself in a much better position to deploy .NET Framework 4 without worrying about breakage of existing apps that may exist in your current enterprise or systems. And uh, Interop has some new features, too. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I mean, this is, this is what I love. There's so much stuff in different areas where .NET Framework 4 has really stepped up and filled a lot of the gaps that existed before. And interop is a big one to enable interop between COM and, let's say, managed applications before there was this concept of a primary interop assembly where you get in this chicken and an egg scenario where, let's say, Office has a primary interop assembly that you use as a managed developer to target and to write add-ins for Office. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, Office itself can't deploy the primary interop assembly when it's installed because Office doesn't require the .NET Framework to be installed. So if the .NET Framework isn't installed, there's potentially no global assembly cache. There's nowhere to deploy the primary interop assembly in the first place. So this new feature called type equivalence in the CLR allows us to essentially mark 
two types that may actually be deployed in different assemblies as saying, hey, these two types are equivalent, they're identical. So while you may be targeting, while you might be developing against a primary interop assembly, there's a new option in Visual Studio 2010 in the settings for that primary interop assembly where you can say, I want you to embed the interop type. And what that'll do is it'll embed the types directly in your deployed assembly and flag them in such a way that the CLR knows, okay, this version or this components that the host is expecting, let's say Office is expecting, is identical to the version that is here in our add-in assembly. So that way, when you go to load this or deploy it, you don't have a situation where you have, let's say, a 2K add-on that's having to drag along a 12-meg PIA, which is kind of insane. So yeah. it's a lot of it's addressed that issue to make interop a lot easier, and especially deployment and management of those interop scenarios a lot better than it was before. PIA, primary interop assembly. Yeah, absolutely. So we often refer to this internally, you'll hear us call it Nopia, which no is just Pia. fun to say. Let's admit it. Nopia. That's no, fun to say. Nopia. Yeah. <laughs> it's also kind of childish in a way. Yeah, but that's, that's what makes it fun. That's what yeah. we that's why we like it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I heard something about a simplified security model, but I'm not sure what that means. Is that are we oh, talking code access goodness. security or what kind of security are we talking about? Yeah, so this is huge and as anyone who's dealt with code access security or CAS in the past knows, CAS is very complex and very hard to deal with. And I would just say that you haven't heard about it because there's a whole bunch of developers before you that took a look at it and went Yuck. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> one way that I would think about it as a simplification is you, Kaz, think about it as just being gone. It's been, there's such a major overhaul to this that the way you implement policy and sandboxing and enforcement in .NET is almost completely different than it was before. And the cool thing about how the team implemented this is that most applications today will continue to work as exactly as they did before. And then the host and library developers that really need to leverage this stuff for protection of their code have a much more simple way to address security in their applications than they ever did before. And, of course, simple is a big thing. You know, that's an important way to address, especially via APIs. This stuff can get so convoluted and complex that it becomes very difficult to get it right. And anything that we're doing that prevents developers from falling into the pit of success is a bad thing. So we have to overhaul this big time. And there's, I mean, if you really want to dig into some details and get into some gory details, we talk about how security really comprises of three areas when we're talking about this kind of code security. We're first of all talking about the policy that defines what the security is and how it behaves. Second, you have the sandboxing that actually takes place to make sure that that code is living in its own sandbox so it can't escalate or do things that it shouldn't do, protection from malicious code. And then you have, at runtime, the physical enforcement of that security that happens. And each three of those areas has been overhauled majorly with CLR4 and overhauled in such a way that it's much more simple, like I stated, where my primary example that I use is when it comes to policy and enforcement of security in CLR4, the CAS policy is actually disabled by default now. 
So the which policy? The code access security policy. Right, the code okay. access security policy. So especially when you look at like machine level policy, that concept is gone, deprecated in a way to where we don't even want you thinking about that. Because there's some problems that come with thinking about policies executed at the enterprise and the machine level that have caused problems and confusions in the past. And the thing is, the correct place for that policy to happen in a lot of ways is at the OS level, not at the .NET level. Because you get into these applications where if you're not doing that OS level policy, you actually have different policies that impact managed and native code. And where does that shift happen between, especially if you have managed code that's calling out to native code? It causes this almost explosion of policies and permission sets to happen that causes a lot of problems. So today, the impact of turning that off by default is that all unhosted managed code is actually fully trusted by default. So code run from a hard drive or code run from a network share today is fully trusted as opposed to what it used to be before. And we've always had to build apps when we wanted to do this stuff that had to be in full trust, right? And it's it's the classic Windows problem of you're either an administrator or your app doesn't run. Right. You ever have full trust or you're hooped. Right, exactly. So it becomes those things where we cause more problems by trying to lock everything down than was actually really necessary before. So today with CLR4, that the hosted code, the code that's actually doing the hosting is the one that is, I should say the host code is enforcing those security decisions or making those security decisions. For instance, code that arrives from the internet, like via click once, isn't going to be fully trusted because everything that comes from IE or from the web or something is going to be partially. So we're not going to break applications or we don't want to let malicious code gain access it, did, it didn't have before, but we m- want people to be able to fall into that pit of success to be able to do things they expect to just work. So that's kind of around the policy stuff. Now, for legacy code issues, there is a way, there's an actual flag that you can enable in your app config to turn on the legacy code access security policy if you want, if the new model is a problem. So there is a way to kind of roll that back. So that's important to know. So that's policy. And then when it comes to sandboxing, to me, sandboxing is one major example where there was a lot of confusion in the past and where this becomes very much a problem. One primary example is what we call the concept of heterogeneous app domains, where it was actually possible before to have an app domain where every assembly that was loaded in that domain had a different permission set. And they could have their customized permission set. And then you talk about the explosion to where the machine policy is going to affect that and where an enterprise-level policy is going to affect that. And at any one time, a developer can't look at a piece of code and say, what is actually going to be the explicit permission set that this code runs with at deploy time? Or even more importantly, it's hard to look at code and say, ah, why isn't that working? Is it my code or is it some stupid permission uh, restriction. Uh, you know, this is why developers hate security. And I'm not saying that it's not necessary. It's just always, uh, it rubs up against our work. Exactly. It makes it very hard to reason what the permission set will actually be at runtime. Yeah. And especially you consider the fact that that policy could look drastically different if you deploy it on one machine versus another machine. Right. Right. Yeah. 
So there were some other problems that exist from that, like because of that, because it becomes very hard to reason about it, you can actually easily find yourself in a situation where lower trust assemblies could actually compromise middle trust assemblies and effectively escalate their permissions, where it, it's almost, almost a college-level thesis or a research problem to try to analyze this stuff to make sure you're doing it right, which is a problem when you expect or you want developers to leverage the technology. Right. So another example is another way to do the sandboxing previously with the CLR was via some of the permissions like permit only, deny, and assert that you do on that are essentially the stack walking modifiers. Mm. So where you say, okay, this, this method call is going to assert that this permission is given, this one should deny it if this permission isn't visible, and so on. And the problem is those stack walking modifiers are really easy to circumvent, where assume you have code that's running fully trusted, then it's kind of game over. Your base code could deny some permission X, and then it loads up some add-in code that contains malicious code that, hey, just asserts that it has permission X. So then when the top code consumes that, it just walks down the stack and it gets to that assert and say, oh, I have this permission, so I don't need to keep on walking. So the deny permission was actually never found. So it's very easy to circumvent this permission set issue that we had before. And because of that deny, if you actually look in .NET Framework 4, that deny capability is actually deprecated. And usage of permit only is actually strongly encouraged. Hmm. Discouraged, I should say, as well. Yeah. Can we move on to uh, uh, memory mapped files? Yeah, absolutely. So (laughs) this is another very interesting one that we find developers using in the native space. And one that, of course, the purists could say is, you know, a cause for concern because there's ways to abuse it. A violation of memory boundaries. Exactly. There's the introduction of memory mapped file into system.io. And the power of that is that that allows developers to gain views into very large files. If you're dealing with files that are in the gigabits of size, then you can actually gain views directly into that and work with it very easily directly into memory rather than having to go through I.O. to actually spin through that and consume extra memory that maybe you wouldn't require in the first place. And then the other thing is, of course, is enabling inter-process communication scenarios or IPC. Yeah, so so in other words, big file exists in process A, process B wants to access it directly, which, you know, flies in the face of what a process is supposed to protect against, but we're just assuming that it's data and it's not code and uh it doesn't allow for code corruption, but it could certainly right. allow for for two processes to access the same directly access the same piece of memory. Yeah. And, of course, why you have to be careful about it from a purity side is this is almost yeah. like the concept of shared code taken to the extremely ugly extreme. Right. Where, <laughs> especially true. people that are fans of functional languages, this kind of makes you puke. You want to see this and it immediately throw up. Yeah. Because yeah. it's making the two – it's not only making code intimate with each other, but it's making processes very yeah. intimate with each other to a point that it can present a problem. And processes that have been the – the, the the foundation on which operating systems since NT have relied upon to make stable applications. Because mm-hmm. once you have processes that are dependent on each other, 
Yeah. Now one yeah, goes down, the other one goes down, essentially. Right, exactly. And it's actually interesting that you bring it up, because before I was on Visual Studio 2010, I was actually working on Windows Server 2008. And one of the big things about Windows Server at that time was that the services that are running, we have to make sure that those aren't dependent on each other, because as soon as you break the dependence between the actual Windows services, then you can put them in different security boxes. Where right. if you don't want to escalate these bottom-level services like, let's say, audio, why in the world on Windows, you know, previous versions of Windows Server, did the audio service have to run essentially with full trust? It's absolutely mm. ridiculous. Yeah. So there's a lot of impact with requiring those you know, explicit dependencies from that sharing of data actually exhibits. Yeah, now that said, there's a lot of great practical uses for memory map files. Uh-huh. And that in basically the site into huge data sets is a big one. Right. You know, if I'm doing some kind of uh, CAD software or if I'm doing some factory management stuff where I'm dealing with literally gigabytes of data, you know, there's some customers that we have that are doing some interesting things where they essentially almost write their own database that's all against a single normalized file, which, mm. of course, is crazy. I'm, I'll say that up front, which is why I'm not name-dropping, but it fits their needs and what they need because they're doing real-time systems that have to have this incredibly quick, incredibly large data set that they need access to. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the Rad Control Suite for Silverlight. Are you already playing with Silverlight 3? Then you might have started using .NET RIA services, rich internet application services, which make data operations a whole lot easier, especially for line-of-business applications. So check it out. Our friends at Telerik are again ahead in the game, tapping on the new benefits of Silverlight 3. Their RAD control suite for Silverlight now fully supports .NET RIA services and domain data source. So if you're wondering what's in it for you, the answer is pretty straightforward. You get completely codeless binding to RIA services, impressive validation support on the client and on the server. Your customer will also be pleased to sort, filter, and page data much faster as all data operations are now server-side. Besides, the suite also offers out-of-browser support, and as you might already have heard, the first commercial 3D chart. Check out the Telerik Silverlight suite at telerik.com silverlight. Don't forget to say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. How about plugins that work with large streams of data, video data, audio data? Right, yeah. And you yeah, want those exactly. to be protected in another process, but you need mm -hmm. access to the stream. Yeah. Mm. So there's definitely some very good uses, and I'm particularly intrigued or happy anytime I see something that was only done or only capable of being done either through native code or C++ CLI that's mm. now possible for the C Sharp or VB. Device. Yeah, I love that too. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, most good technologies can be badly abused. Most. It's mm -hmm. sort of a rule, right? If you can't shoot yourself in the foot with it, it isn't good enough. Right. But, and this is all. This is a special case technology. You shouldn't use this every day, but there's going to be certain apps where you otherwise would have done this in C++. Yeah, it's interesting. My favorite comparison is actually from Microsoft Research and Simon Peyton-Jones. And Simon Peyton-Jones, of course, is a huge Haskell guy, mm -hmm. hugely into functional programming languages. And on a Channel 9 video he did, he wrote this graph where essentially one coordinate 
of the graph was how pure it is, how many side effects are allowed in the language. And right. you go anywhere from fully, you know, side effect free to, you know, all side effects, it doesn't matter. And then on the other coordinate of the graph, you know, going up, he had how useful was the language? Was it completely useless or was it extremely useful? And he charted how, how languages exist now is the closer you get to having being completely side, side effect free, also the more useless the language becomes. Because right. so much of the work we do in computers has to do with side effects. It's all and about he, exceptions. Right, exactly. And hearing him, you know, a big functional guy talk about that is very interesting where it's like, yeah, side effect free is nice, but it only takes you so far. Right. Can we talk about um, covariance and contravariance annotations and what we exactly can talk that about means? Anything you guys want. Well, that's <laughs> anything you guys want. I think that's one of those kind of strange, you know, things that sounds more technical than it really is. Yeah. And um, yeah, so let's dive into generic variance. If we hit a topic that I don't know enough about, we'll just edit it out so I don't sound like an idiot. Of course, so, that's what we do. R- right, exactly. <laughs> Why do you so think we sound, like sound so smart? <laughs> oh, that explains it. That it's explains why editing. I was never able to correlate, you know, meeting you in person with what I knew from that, .NET Rocks. That's right. If I don't bring along Brandon, I sound like this. Okay, so there's the Carl I know. Okay. Now I feel much more at ease. Yeah, you should see he can actually take real smart words and paste them over real dumb words, and you never know it. It's just great. Oh, man, I have so many jokes that come to mind, which I'm just totally not allowed to say as a Microsoft employee. We haven't made the spousal version of Brandon yet. No, no, no. (laughs) So generic variance is an interesting one, or covariance and contravariance, where... You can either get really technical with it, and Eric Lippert has this excellent blog series where he has like an 11-part or 12-part that gets into theory of why this is important to type systems and all stuff that you'll get to part three or part four and your brain will explode. Yeah. (laughs) At at the core of it, I like to put it this way. 95% plus of the developers out there are never going to care about covariance and contravariance. They're yeah. never going to need to know that we even implemented covariance and contravariance. The impact to them is that scenarios that they think or they naturally think should work actually work now. So an example, to use the canonical example, which is totally not real world, is let's take shapes. And we're talking about I have an eye shape and then I have an eye circle. Okay. And I'm using a link statement that expects an I enumerable of I shape, and I pass it an I enumerable of I circle, even if, or I should say shape and circle, even if circle derives and has the base class of shape, we'll actually fail because we'll say right. enumerable of circle is not equivalent to enumerable of shape. Yeah. And th- the essence is that generic variants by us as library developers, introducing covariance and contravariance and making some of our interfaces like enumerable, covariance, and contravariant aware, those kind of situations are just going to work now. I, I feel like there's a whole bunch of people we just left in the dust by not explaining, you know, in, in a one-sentence elevator pitch what, what this is. And I know you're giving a good example, but... Well, see, this is the problem with generic variance is when you talk about covariance and contravariance, 
it's very difficult to get into the topic of what do we mean by variance without getting into abstract discussions like what do we mean by subtype and supertype. Right. Where subtype and supertype, a lot of people may initially assume that that means, okay, subclass and parent class, which is totally not the case because there's different types of relationships where a type can be smaller or larger than another one. So you might say covariance is a, it means that a generic of a type can be treated as a generic of a supertype. And contra means that a generic of a type can be treated as a generic of a subtype. Right, to where it goes into what's the relationship. If I have a generic type, what's the relationship in that parameter, the parameter, or the par- technically some people might call them parameterized types? What's the relationship of that, you know, in a supertype and subtype relationship? Mm. Yeah. And not only that, but covariance and contravariance, that's the first part of it, but the next part essentially goes into how is it that generic type being used? Is it being used explicitly as an output or is it being used as an input? Because that'll determine whether it needs to be covariant and contravariant. And then you get into all sorts of things that are mind-blowing, like what if the input is actually an output of something else and it explodes? Yeah. That's where the head explosion happens. That's where brain no work Exactly. That's brain meltage. You know, yeah. that's the death death ray that we're sending out from Microsoft corporate. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a little sound that goes with it. It's kind of like... Right. If you hear that sound and you're in your computer, run. <laughs> First, if you're using Windows 7, we track you everywhere with geolocation. Oh, so, not good. Not good. Yeah. You're not supposed I, to tell sh- them that. I, sh- I know. Shh. For any Microsoft legal folks listening, I was joking. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon, keep that in. Don't yeah. that. Yeah. Thanks. Leave yeah, that I, I'm going to get an email from my LCA contact, Jason. We need to talk. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, there's a whole bunch of new parallel extensions in .NET 4. So many good things from lazy init of T to uh, uh, parallel 4. P-Link. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a bunch of stuff here. Yeah. The Parallel Computing Team has done a wonderful job on Parallel Extensions. The long-term vision of Parallel Extensions is essentially we want to get to a point where your average developer can not have to worry about this stuff anymore. Specifically the locking. you're developing applications today is at the enterprise an enterprise or an ISV or what have you has to devote their smartest and brightest people hmm. to addressing concurrency issues. Yep. And that's a huge problem. And part of the problem of getting away with that or this first step that we're taking, you know, this isn't going to be concurrency for the masses, you know, on this first step. But it's a step in the right direction where we want to get to the point where developers don't have to even think about threads anymore. And specifically locking and synchronizing. Right. When you get into locking and synchronization structures and everything that you usually get with threads, it becomes a very difficult topic to reason about because a lot of people can't envision the interactions that can possibly happen. Right. And, it, and that's really what it is. It, that's really what it is. It's people that they don't have the imagination required to sort of see what's going on theoretically. And, and there's no way to debug it, um, you know, just by, just by looking at your empirical evidence. You have to know the theory. 
Yeah, the problem is if you attach a debugger, the mere, it's kind of like a quantum problem where right. the mere observation of it makes the behavior go away. Yeah. 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 And my favorite quote is from an ex-coworker where it's just like, okay, you're looking at something and you're kind of reacting. You know, this problem is one in a billion, one right. in a trillion. It'll never happen. Right. The problem is in a many core world, one in a billion, one in a trillion happens about, you know, every half a second. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it says say with it me now gigahertz yeah. right, right. Yeah. <laughs> times it's, 10 it's a big problem so one of the ways that we've addressed this is raising the level of abstraction to this new abstraction called a task to dig into what a ta task actually is this is introduced via the task parallel library that's part of parallel extensions or just tpl where it's allowing a developer to reason and implement code in such a way that just says, you know, here's a unit of work I want to get done and go do it for me. It's very similar to what people used to use the thread pool for in like queue user work item. The problem is before when you're dealing with threads, the thread API, if I had access to an instance of a thread, if the API was very rich. There were a lot of things I could do with that instance of a thread, like canceling it and interacting with it in different ways, suspending mm. it and waiting for it and so on. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I take the route of moving to the thread pool, which is a lot easier to reason about, I lose all that richness. Right. Now, what if I want to coordinate between two work items that I've submitted to the thread pool? Mm. Well, now, now you're back into locking and mutexes and synchronization structures that become very difficult to use. Right. So the thing that's awesome that I love about the TPL or the task parallel library is now this task when you have an instance of a task, you have the richness of API and even more so than you used to have with a thread with the behavior that you may have gotten with the thread pool, but even more so. So it becomes very powerful. So in other words, you don't really have to worry about locking when you're trying to coordinate things across multiple tasks. Right. You can say, let's say I have these four things that need to be done. I can actually say, here's the first task. And then I can say dot continue with this other task, and then dot continue with this other task. And then I can, I can compose all these different tasks together. Hmm. Of course, the problem is to truly do that, you have to be working in an environment where, you, once again, you're not dealing with shared memory. Right. As soon as two individual tasks are sh trying to share some memory, mm -hmm. then you're back having to worry about synchronization between the two tasks. So if it doesn't, if it doesn't give you the, the sort of auto-locking stuff, why not just use a thread? So what's great about this is, like I said, the composition of tasks is very powerful, especially when you take into account that there's, there's APIs built into the task that make it easier to deal with the APM or the asynchronous programming model in .NET. So I could actually say task.factory. perhaps like start async, where it'll spin up and you give it an asynchronous library or an asynchronous call, which before you would have to worry about begin and end and passing that I async result mm. and everything, where now you essentially just pass in a Lambda expression that says, here's what I want to run asynchronously with this, and then TPL will handle it. And then, of course, you can chain it to all the other stuff. You can follow that up with another APM call, which you can follow up with another task, and you can you know, handle rollbacks and cancellation. Let's say I want to cancel everything that's currently running. I can do that via this new task cancellation primitive, where I can say this token that I have for canceling tasks, 
I can just pass it to all these tasks I'm creating, call dot cancel on it, and bam, TPL at runtime will handle all this stuff. Mm. Now, what's interesting about TPL is this is just the primitive layer. So it provides a lot more control and a lot more power over threads, but it's just a primitives layer that the really, really cool stuff of parallel extensions is built on. Right. And that would primarily be like the parallel static class mm-hmm. and especially parallel link or P-link. P-link, parallel 4. Oh yeah, exactly. God. So I could say parallel dot 4 and then pass in, you know, an enumerator that I'm going to be going over, and then it'll handle splitting every enumeration onto a different thread or however many threads. It'll do the thread allocation you right. need or that the system recognizes needs done. You don't have to worry about that. It's smart. Because that's than another you. problem with worrying <laughs> about threads is how many threads do I allocate? Right. Which that question to a junior dev sounds very simple. Yeah, as many as possible. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, you know, that's sometimes it feels idea. like Outlook does that, but that's a different story <laughs> altogether. No, it doesn't feel it. It does that, yes. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Well, it shows how difficult really good parallel programming is. And there's a reason that this has been a research topic for 30, 40, 50 plus years. Mm -hmm. Yep. And what's scary about it is you think about how fundamental of a shift this is for programming. Where we're talking about Intel, you know, within the next 5, 10 years, introducing a CPU that may have 100, 200 plus cores on it. And, you know, it's one thing to reason about how do I allocate threads, you know, when I'm dealing with a dual-core machine, but then how do I do it when I'm dealing with a machine that has 340 cores on it? Yeah. It becomes something that's almost impossible to do. Just let the runtime take care of it for you, and you write your code in a more declarative way, like via link, where you just can say on your source, from p in source dot as parallel. And by just adding the dot as parallel, bam, now you're in P-Link world and we'll handle the partitioning, yeah. the allocation, the underlying runtime, all that kind of stuff for you. And there's also a whole bunch of primitives just in system threading that are new, like spin lock, spin weight, uh, semaphore yeah. slim, barrier, yeah. just a whole bunch of little low-level tweaky things too that are... Exactly. The people that need more access, the Einsteins that are out there writing this code... We're enabling them to do their job even easier, but then also providing those upper-level things that make it easier for other people, like the co- what we call the coordination data structures that are now in, I think the current is system.collections.generic.concurrent or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, system collections concurrent, yeah. Which is going to make it a lot easier for people to consume those to coordinate work. To me, this sounds no different than the arguments we were having in 2000 around memory management. Mm-hmm. You know, hmm. it, it, it was that same basic, look, stop managing memory. Right. We'll do it. It's too hard. It's unnecessary. We'll do it. Yeah, there's going to be some weirdness. You know, we're going to introduce garbage collection to your life. Right. Yeah, no, that variable won't go away exactly when you think it does, right? It's the same thing here. And I love, I think it was Stephen Tabu said, if you say create thread, you fail. You failed. Yeah. <laughs> you failed yeah. right then and That's there. You let yeah. the framework do so, it. So, and the ultimate uh, high level tool, I think, is software transactional memory. Yeah. STM actually isn't in .NET Framework 4 itself, but there's a lot of work actually from that same team, the parallel computing team around bringing software transactional memory. What I think is really intriguing now, I about that, this... I thought I heard from Stephen Taub that it was going to be in uh, 4.0. Has that changed? 
Yeah, so actually it's not. It's an add-on that the current release on DevLabs actually okay. targets or can run on top of .NET 4. Okay. What I find especially interesting about STM is, first of all, like anything else, software transacted memory isn't a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything. Mm-hmm. It helps get us part of the way, especially when we're dealing with working in systems that naturally have shared memory. It's a very intriguing solution that also comes, Simon Peyton Jones in the Haskell world did a lot of research for this and helped with that trade-off onto our parallel computing team. But you see other languages that have STM already available for them, like Clojure in the Java space, that supports STM out of the box. Right. So it's definitely an intriguing solution. It shows when it comes to parallel computing and what we call the many core shift, Microsoft is spending a lot of research and a lot of effort into the different ways this can address or we can address these problems. Because there is no silver bullet. We really need to think about those ways that are going to enable all the developers in different programming styles to address this coming many core shift. Hmm. I guess the question is in my mind is, is this Microsoft basically grabbing every parallel idea they could think of and throwing them all at the wall to see if they stick? Or is it we're going to need all of these things ultimately to be successful, and they're just all being developed in parallel. Right. I think it's definitely not Microsoft throwing everything at the wall and see what's going to stick, because obviously there are some ideas out there that don't apply to .NET. You know, there's certain areas that just aren't applicable to our development paradigm. But you have to address things. You have to address parallelism at the low level, at the mid level, and at the high level. I mean, you got to... That's just what I see. I mean... No one application is going to use them all. Exactly, and there's different ways to address it already. Like like all of us know, when it comes to the web server, I mean, that's the most popular multi-threaded platform that already exists, and people don't really have problems targeting it. Yeah. So there's different ways where when you look at, like, Twitter and some of the back-end work they do to parallelize via, like, Scala and messaging, there's different ways to address parallelism depending on what level of granularity you're talking about. So you imagine that in the future, as this stuff matures, different apps will use different pieces of it, really. Right. Sure. Although, I mean, i got to think the parallel task library is just going to become part of normal operations. that You parallel wherever you can by using these expressions that say that essentially give the, the library the ability you're identifying, hey, this could run in parallel. And then it decides whether it's going to or not. And the challenge to that even is a common question we get with Parallel.4 is, hey, Microsoft, why don't you just make the decision of when to do Parallel.4 and do it under the hood, let's say in the compiler or the runtime? And the problem is, in a generic way, there's no way that we can guarantee that it's safe to do that because there's no way beforehand to determine, okay, how much granularity is in the calculation itself. If you're just looping through an array of numbers and adding two numbers together, the overhead you're going to incur from bringing in all these parallel primitives isn't going to justify the overhead that is coming from the actual calculations being done. So there is some domain-specific knowledge that the programmer has to have to say, yes, this is somewhere that I need to parallelize. And the challenge is that also requires an aspect of the tooling because it comes down to measure, 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 measure. You, you never know where the actual bottleneck is for sure until you actually have physical numbers and physical proof in your hand that says, here's the place that's the problem. And sometimes addressing that and making it more parallel 
isn't just slapping a parallel dot four around something. It might actually be rewriting the algorithm to use less shared memory than it required before. Right. Okay. Languages. So languages. Oh man, this is like a this is like a tour de force. <laughs> Dynamic, static, functional, yeah. non-functional. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And the thing is, I think by saying two or to force, I'm going to owe people money. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not going to forget it. I'm, people, coworkers are not going to let me forget about using that phrase ever. Definitely. Yeah. So the way I like to drill it down, if we get really basic on the messaging of what the improvements are, in languages in C-sharp 4 and VB10, the way I dig it down to its absolute most simple of why we're doing what we're doing is this concept of ceremony versus essence. Writing simple, concise, and expressive code. The stuff that you would have had to do that was very ceremonial, merely to work around the compiler, let's say, Hmm. we're getting rid of that stuff so that you can express code in such a way that it's just the pure essence of what you were meaning to express as a developer. Hmm. The problem historically is that compilers and languages are written in such a way to target the machine. And the thing is, 80-90% of the work we do as developers is reading code. So the more that we can focus on writing readable code, we can worry about the optimizations later. You don't want to go down that route too early. So we need to focus on the essence of what code means versus all this ceremony that some languages implement that we have to jump through hoops in order to express what we want as a developer. Now, it might be better to talk about that by using some examples because that's really high pie in the sky. Like, what the heck is Jason talking about? He's just throwing words at Carl and Richard. So declaring a variable is ceremony. Well, in a way... When you look, let's say, let's look at a previous version of C-sharp and the introduction of the var keyword. It was ceremony. Let's say I'm creating a new collection and I have to say, you know, I dictionary of string of object dictionary equals new dictionary, uh, dictionary of string of object, where it's ceremony because I'm having to express it in two different places. But that's just you C-sharp guys. Us VB people have always never well, had to deal with that. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <sighs> no, I'll actually mention this in auto properties in VB10 as a way that the way auto properties are implemented in VB10, there is some things for us C-sharp devs to definitely be jealous about. But this is also something that's always annoyed me is the people where it gets religious on C-sharp versus VB. Because let's face yeah. it, both of them have their strengths. And if you if as a developer you associate yourself and your being and who you are, you define by what language you use, that's kind of an instant fail right there. Yep, I agree. Because that language isn't going to be around forever. And uh, most developers pride themselves on, you know, it doesn't matter what the language is. I can learn any new language that comes along. Sure. I'm sorry, my automatic reaction to that statement was, spoken like a C-sharp guy! (laughs) (laughs) I, You know, the the days of, uh, and I still see this today, you know, on Twitter, like, you know, Carl Franklin's like a VB zealot, and those days are just over for me, you know, I just doesn't, I just got over it very quickly. I think during the the very beginning of .NET Rocks, you know, there was like a little friendly rivalry between the C-sharp guys and the VB net guys, but uh, no, I don't... uh, that's come on, people. End, Grow up. Yeah, for 
for me, at the end of the day, it's about shipping code. What have you shipped? Exactly. If you're going to sit around on Twitter and complain and bitch and moan about, you know, this design practice or this language feature, you know, I don't care. Shut your mouth and ship code. Really? Yeah. Simon Peyton Jones said the same thing, right? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah, and absolutely. It's funny because recently I was on uh, paternity leave after the birth of my second son, and I found that, okay, I'm on paternity leave. If I get time to write any code, which that is laughable in of itself when I had to take care of a two-and-a-half-year-old on top of it, if yeah. I get any time, I'm not going to touch .NET. I'm going to, let's say, use Scala if I get any coding time. So I found myself for the last couple of weeks writing nothing but Scala code. And, you know, it was very enjoyable because if you don't go out and learn other languages and other paradigms, you're essentially handicapping yourself as a developer. Yep. So anyways, that's a, wow, that's a huge tangent. So uh, I'll try to step down from my soapbox and get back to the con, get back to the topic of C-sharp 4 and VB10. Well, let's just, well, we should just at least name the languages. I mean, we got the DLR now, so we have yep. Iron Python. Mm-hmm. Do we have Iron Ruby? Yep. And those are supported directly here. Now, those aren't packaged in the box with .NET Framework 4, but they are .NET languages that build okay. on top of the DLR. We have F Sharp. Yep. Which is in the box now, thank yep. goodness, with Visual Studio 2010. We got a new C Sharp and a new VBNet. Yep. C Sharp 4 and VB10. Don't forget Fortran. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then you Sorry. have C++ and then, of course, C++ CLI. C++ what? C++ slash CLI. When .NET was first released, we it was referred to as managed C++ or like managed extensions for oh, C++, which okay. was the way to write managed code in C++. Okay. And it was a horrible model that they first implemented. They scrapped it in a previous release and came up with C++ CLI. All right. So we're just talking about managed C++ and unmanaged C++ and then mixed yeah. mode C++. Yeah. Yeah. And a big thing about... You mentioned mixed mode. Something that I didn't mention back in the CLR enhancements is now support for 64-bit mixed mode debugging. Wow. Wow. Yeah, which is a huge, huge feature that people have been asking for. You know what an even bigger feature people have been asking for? What's is, that? Is uh, inline assembler in Iron Ruby. <laughs> Come on. When are you guys going to do, do a real language? Oh, my God. Well, it's hilarious because when I was doing that Scala work on my break, one of the things I was doing was playing around or working through this old series of articles from, I think it was the late 80s, called Let's Build a Compiler, where it goes through and builds this Pascal compiler, and the code it generates is actually Motorola 68K assembly. (laughs) And I was just like, well, I don't have a 68K chip, so... (laughs) You know, screw it. I'll just use that as my intermediate language, and I'm going to create a 68K emulator. What the hell? (laughs) So that was a fun diversion where you download the 68K CPU specs and get into all the indirect addressing modes and how to support stuff. You, sir, are the king geek in this room. Oh yeah, no, that's I'm that's not extremely sure about that. I've heard Richard's stories on the uh, Richard, of websites and everything, and it scares me. Richard is a smart guy, but that's a little over the top. Yeah, haven't yeah. been emulating any processors lately. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, he buys I didn't know whether to, to even that. mention it on Twitter because I felt like such a dork by even just oh, thinking yeah. that that would be a fun idea. Now, well, and it's not even like there's a mach- there's not even like there's a later generation processor you could have flopped over to that it supports the instruction set because the power PC broke away from yeah. it entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's just it's like a total orphan. Let's use sixty eight K as you know intermediate P code. Yeah, Why yeah. Not? That's not Richard's style, actually, to write an emulator. Richard would build one from hardware. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I just goodness. wire yeah. one back up. Again. Yeah, that would be awesome. I, you know, actually, the reality is, I'd go into my back room and go get a sixty-eight thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you ever build your own Apple II? Yes, I did. Oh my goodness! See, actually, my my room. So I know about indirect ad, indirect indexed addressing from the sixty-five hundred two. Yeah. My real love affair with the 68,000 came with, get this, Novell servers. Do you remember? Back when a file server was a different piece of hardware. Well, see, the thing is, I don't remember because the first time I touched a computer was to sign up for an email address. <laughs> <laughs> You're a child. Oh, man. Right, yeah. Child who builds 6,800 emulators for fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the There's... sad part is I was late to the computer game, and I find myself very intrigued by reading up on computer history. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I've taken some funny little routes along the way, but yeah, and I'm just quickly searching to see, is there been any path forward on 68,000? There really never was. Net, it, by about 1993, 94, it was over. It just got orphaned. Yeah, where I hit the hurdle that stopped my emulator from going forward is when he was using some syntax that wasn't anywhere in the 68K assembly guide. And I was just like, oh, okay, damn. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Game over. I can't handle that. Nothing I can do. Well, guys, uh, I think it's about that time. We could talk forever, but, uh, you know, our listeners have got to go to work sometime, so... Well, that's a bummer, man. I've been waiting since the beginning of my .NET programming career to be on your show. <laughs> and I think you hit it out of the park, Jason. Well, yeah. that's that's good to hear. That's good to hear. All right, man. Okay. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 